And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome, everybody, to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Joining me this evening, tonight, is a man who usually likes Giassi Zardes, but tonight loves him because he saved us from extra time. It's Joe Lowry. Joe, we're going to be up early for the U.S. Women's National Team knockout round game versus the Netherlands. How important was Giassi scoring in regulation for you to keep your sleep schedule (laughs) somewhat normal? Oh, it's massive. Giassi's artist is a man of the people. He knows that you and Jordan and I and everybody else is going to be up for that U.S. Women's National Team game tomorrow. He wants to see that team win, and he wants us, Taylor, most importantly, to be well-rested when we break that thing down. So thanks, Giassi. Of course. And I I appreciate that. I appreciate that he was willing to make that sacrifice for us. I'm assuming he wanted to play that extra 30 minutes, but he knew America needed to sleep in preparation for that game against the Netherlands. So he uh, he did the hero's duty. Uh, We are here to talk about the USA's one day win over Qatar in the semifinal of the Gold Cup. It pushes the U.S. through to the final where they will meet the winner of Canada and Mexico. That game is being played as we speak. I do not know the score, uh, but I look forward to that final regardless of who it is. Uh, Joe, we're going to talk about what went sort of wrong for the U.S. in the first half, what Qatar did to frustrate the United States, why the second half looked a little bit different and where we go from here. But I want to start with Qatar because I had a few people message me during the game to ask, number one, why is Qatar in the Gold Cup? Did they join CONCACAF? And number two, why aren't we beating a team that I used to destroy in FIFA? And I think (laughs) both of those are fair questions because it is slightly confusing to have uh, a guest team playing in the Gold Cup. But it's also confusing to have Qatar looking like a very good, exciting attacking team. I know you wrote a very good piece detailing what they like to do uh, in terms of their tactics defensively in an attack for the athletic. Joe, take it away. Tell us about Qatar and how they have done what they have done to get to where they are. Okay, so Qatar, from a soccer standpoint, is doing some really interesting things as they prepare for the 2022 World Cup. They've had a decade, basically, to prepare for that tournament and to be able to field a team that's not going to get embarrassed on their home soil. And so a big part of that project has been developing players locally in Qatar and also bringing in players from other countries as they can. As well as that development, they've also just been playing a ton of games. John Strong and Stu Holden were mentioning on the broadcast tonight on FS1 that this Qatar team had about 50 caps 
you know, more than the U.S. per man. And, and that's that's a, a fair representation of how many games this Qatar team is playing. They played at the 2019 Copa America as a guest team. They were supposed to play at the Copa America again this summer, but there was some sort of scheduling conflict that nobody's really super sure what that was. But they're, they're playing in this tournament, obviously. They're playing as a, a shadow team in UEFA World Cup qualifying in Group A. They're playing friendlies against the four or five teams in that group. Uh, because, oh, it's five because there's uh, an odd number of teams. So they're playing the, the odd team out each international window. So they're doing so many of these competitions to be able to prepare themselves for the World Cup. So you add that to the quality of player that they're developing and the quality that they have. And on top of that, so many of these players play for the same teams in Qatar. Every single person on this Qatar roster plays in the Qatar Stars League, I believe it's what it's called. They have 12 players playing for Xavi's team in Qatar. So there's so many of these factors that fit together, the quality of the players, the reps they're getting at club level and international level. This is this is a scary team. They're a strong team. They're coached really well. Uh, I'm a little bit surprised, to be honest, at this point, that the U.S. was able to win this game. Matt Turner had a huge hand in that. But this Qatar team is no joke. And we had the listener question earlier in the week that the four of us answered about, like, would, like, pretty much, like, any good big club team defeat the national team of that country. So would Bayern Munich beat Germany? And I think our kind of consensus answer was mostly yes. And in Qatar, I feel like we have sort of both of those things happening yeah. simultaneously because you have so many te- players, as you said, playing for Al-Sad, but they're all in the same league. And even if they're not for Al-Sad, they're likely for Al-Duhail. Uh, so you've got a ton of familiarity at club level. Then you've got this team playing a ton of games at international level, and you are building that chemistry, camaraderie, consistency, and just ability to attack and play quick soccer because once you have that familiarity, you know where people are going to be. You sort of don't have to think. You don't have those little half-second, quarter-second delays as you're evaluating your options. Things just move very fluidly. And I think before this game... I was sort of putting them in the category of like a team that is going to be difficult, but the U.S. should beat. And I think at halftime, I was thinking, this is a really good team and could knock the United States out. I think if it's a stronger U.S. team, I think they're not as likely to do that. But they caused some problems. This was certainly the U.S.'s biggest threat so far in the Gold Cup. And so with that in mind, I think in the end, it it is a positive result for the United States. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's like a strongly positive result. And I think we're going to talk about the positives and the negatives, both team wise and individually. But overall, I think for the strength and experience that this Qatar team was bringing into this game, I do think in the end, it's a good result for the United States. Joe, broadly speaking, would you agree with that one? Absolutely. Result-wise, we can do, we're, we're going to dive into the mm-hmm. performance. But just on paper, the quality of this U.S. team relative to the quality of this Qatar team, if you're telling me the U.S. comes out of this game with a victory, which they obviously did, you've got to be ecstatic about that. Yes, the purpose of this Gold Cup for the U.S. is not necessarily to win at all costs, but you want to win. And winning against a very strong Qatar team is, is a good thing. It is. And we, we started this game with a very familiar team to the one we saw against Jamaica, the exact same starting 11, with everybody pretty much doing the exact same things. A few different little adjustments, I think, based on what they expected Qatar to do, both in attack and defense. Joe, when you saw the starting 11, were you okay with it? Were there any things that you would have liked to see differently? Or, or for the most part, were you happy to see the same team get another rep together? I was pretty happy to see the same team uh, get another chance to go out there and try to try to build on that performance against Jamaica, which again mixed, not not certainly not entirely positive. I was a little bit worried about Daryl DK, and that proved to be justified. But the reasoning that the broadcast gave about Berhalter playing him, I thought was totally sound. You you want to put faith in these guys. You want to trust these guys to learn and grow. DK has been playing soccer for a year, so giving him another chance after a poor performance is. Is fair. And Busio is the other guy I was a little bit concerned about. I don't think he had the strongest game tonight. I would have liked to see Eric Williamson, but that's that's splitting a fairly sizable hair, but still splitting hairs. I don't think it would have made that much of a difference, Taylor. Yeah, I don't think it would have either. I, I think I was, as I tweeted, like I was okay with seeing the same eleven to see if we had improvement to see if there were sort of developments and adjustments made based on what happened last time that that did work and we stick with it and the things that didn't are improved. And I think at the end of the game, I have bigger questions about a few players than I think I expected to with 
that sort of second opportunity to impress. We're going to talk about, as I said, the individual performances later. But I think having set the stage with the the strength of this Qatar team and the, I guess, the somewhat experience of the U.S. team with this being the kind of second consecutive game with the same starters... Joe, what were you expecting from Qatar in the way they were going to defend and attack? And then we can talk a little bit about how the United States handled that. Qatar press a little bit, especially on goal kicks. And we saw that tonight. They've done that all throughout their three group stage games and then in the quarterfinals against El Salvador. They like to step high in those moments in their 5-3-2 defensive shape. They'll push the wing backs up when they press. They'll try to deny the ball into midfield. I thought... They were kind of bad at that tonight, worse than I'd seen them be in all the other footage I'd watched of them. But they press some and then they sit back. Most of the time they sit back in a 5-3-2 mid block. And we saw that over and over and over again. The U.S. had real struggles in the first half breaking that down. And it proved to be really effective for Qatar, shifting laterally in that shape, denying space in real meaningful areas for the United States. And then in, in attack, Qatar, super dangerous on the counter. Uh, Afif, number 11 for them, is maybe the most creative player at this whole darn tournament. He is so, so good on the ball. Right-footed, can play a well-weighted ball forward. He can also drive the ball forward himself. I think we saw him do all of those things tonight. And then in possession, they'll use width a lot. They'll get the wing backs forward and really wide. They'll push Hassan, the left center back, up to overload the left side especially. They don't push the right center back up nearly as much. But Hassan will push forward and they'll have either a 2v1 on that left wing or a 3v2. We saw all that stuff tonight as well. I think they're most dangerous when they have the ball, which is kind of weird that they don't press more to get the ball and and have more opportunities, but they were still plenty dangerous with the opportunities they had. Yeah, they were. I think if they'd been a little bit more dangerous, if they'd been a little bit more clinical, we're having a different conversation right now. So I guess if you're a U.S. fan, thankfully they did not. For the U.S.'s part, it was the kind of standard 4-3-3 that we've come to expect, unless they're going to be in a back three. Here they were not. What was interesting to me, and Joe, I'm wondering if you would agree with this, is that I I feel like normally when the U.S. is in a 4-3-3, when they do like go with the kind of mid-block defensive approach, it tends to be more of a 4-5-1. And we have those wide attackers, at least eventually, maybe not automatically, maybe it's not quite so defensive, but usually you have those those wide attackers filling it out wide, and that gives you the sort of numbers across the middle, but also out wide so that it makes it difficult for the opponent to play through. And it stood out to me tonight because even defensively, it seemed like the U.S. kind of stuck with a 4-3-3 with those wide attackers more central and still higher up the pitch. And I think they were trying to push Qatar out wide to some extent. And then when Qatar would go wide, when they would attack down the channel, those wide attackers, let's say it's Paul Areola on the right, he would, instead of sort of then filling in out wide, I saw him collapsing centrally. And I think there were reasons for that. But uh, a thing that you pointed out in your athletic preview or your athletic piece where you broke down Qatar's tactics, if you're giving them out space out wide, Qatar, and you're giving them the opportunity to hit that big diagonal into space, they will do that and they look to do that and they want to do that. And so to some extent, I think the U.S. was trying to engage higher up and make it more difficult for Qatar to play out and find some of those links through the middle and through the midfield. But I also think when they did let the ball get wide, it was sort of exactly what Qatar wanted to have happen. And the U.S. kind of struggled to deal with that. So that's my sort of initial read on the U.S.'s defensive issues early on. Uh, Did you spot that or did you see anything different that maybe uh, maybe means that I'm worrying too much? No, I don't think you're worrying too much at all. What I will say is the U.S. did have a lot of success high pressing in that 4-3-3 in the first half. They, uh, the first 10, 15 minutes, they forced Qatar long almost every single time and won almost all of those balls in midfield. So things started really well. And then midway through the first half, I noticed a sequence, I think, the, around the 20th minute and then again later the 35th minute. And there were some good moments in between. But those two moments, the U.S. ended up in that 4-3-3 high block that we've talked about earlier on in this tournament for the United, uh, for the United States men's national team. It's like they're caught in between actually pressing and just standing high up the field and there's some sort of disconnect. And in that moment, that's when it becomes really dangerous to have those wingers, Hoppy and Areola in this game, to have those wingers central, like you're talking about, Taylor. That's when you really do... 
if you're not going to engage the other team, if you're not going to step that line of confrontation up and press, that's when you need to flatten out into a 4-5-1. And the U.S. really don't like to do that. They haven't done that, at least not that I've seen, a lot by choice under Greg Berhalter since he, he switched to this 4-3-3 shape in 2020. They want to engage. They want to press. And so Qatar really started to have some success when they had a chance to breathe. And Kuki and uh, Boudiaf, the center center back and the number six for Qatar, the central defensive midfielder, they, they had a chance to actually pass the ball through the U.S., and that's when Qatar started to look really dangerous. Those moments and when they would win, when Qatar would win second balls in midfield or around midfield, that save that Matt Turner has, the I have it in my notes as the God mode save in the 21st yeah. minute. When Afif has the ball wide on the left, he cuts inside and shoots. Busio deflects the shot, and it falls to uh, – shoot, I can't find it in my notes. Hatim, right? Hatim. Uh, right at the edge of the six-yard box, and a team shoots and Turner saves it. That whole sequence comes about because Qatar win the ball near midfield and then can just quickly play the ball out wide because the U.S. don't have cover. So credit to Qatar. They took advantage of those outside spaces really well. But it is it is a problem for the U.S. You need to deny those spaces. And I think they were a little bit mixed in how they did that tonight. And and I really I want to double down and say, and credit to Joe Lowry, because uh, 2022 on the clock, if you want to watch that one, or the chance you're talking about of the 40th minute, both times that is essentially a big switch to that left-hand side for Qatar, and it's Shaq Moore having to close 10, 15, 20 yards in a 1v1. And in those 1v1 battles, I think the goal for the United States was don't get beat, try to slow them down. And so I think that led to Shaq Moore being slightly standoffish in that 1v1 defense. And so at least for that 40th minute one, he's so standoffish that he just gets beat there. And then that's where if you are kind of relying on 1v1 defense... If that person gets bypassed, now you're flying through the air a little bit. And I think it goes back to the idea that if Qatar had been clinical, I think this is a different, at the very least, halftime team talk. Uh, one thing you, you noted there, Joe, that I like basically the gist of this game for me is first half, U.S. start okay, Qatar get confident, the United States may be fortunate to not concede. The U.S. make changes midway through the second half that I think work pretty well. They make a few more changes near the end, and then they get the winner. That's sort of my overall narrative. So with that in mind, I feel kind of okay to jump around. And one thing I want to spotlight for a moment is the sort of the 50-50 issue, the winning the second balls, the winning those loose balls. It's the thing that Burhalter spotlighted in his post-match press conference. Uh, Brian Sharetta tweeted this one, uh, said Burhalter, quote, there what? There weren't any tweaks at halftime. It's about desire. I look at the statistics and they won more duels. We got to correct that. When we step on the field, we need to be competing. That was the message at halftime. We need to be more ruthless when we go into duels, end quote. And I, I point that out to say that I feel like this is the second time I've heard Burhalter talk about not winning duels and not being competitive in those 50-50s. Joe, having seen that at least twice in this tournament, do you have an idea for why that might be? Or is it just that when you have the U.S. sort of trying to win that initial ball, it can be a bit of a crapshoot as to where that second ball is going to end up? Ah. <sighs> It's a hard question. Some of it, I it think, is. has it's to for do sure with... Is. Well, I mean, but we can still try to figure sure. out an answer, or at least, well, not maybe not the answer, but an answer. Some of it, I think, has to do with personnel in some respects. The back line, especially the center backs, I think are very capable of winning those first balls. And they did a lot of that in this game. Miles Robinson and James Sands, I think, did a pretty good job defensively, especially Robinson. Kellen Acosta, then, as the six, has the mobility to move side to side, and that's that's good. He eats up a lot of those balls in midfield, too. But Leggett and Busio as the two eights aren't really ball winners. And you have to live with that in a, in a certain way because you, you want those players to be more creative and you want them to be able to be in the pocket and turn on that, get the ball in the half turn and then play a ball in behind or to drive the ball forward, commit a defender and then go. And, and so there has to be some element of a trade off here. But at the same time, you just need those players to get stuck in every once in a while. I kind of roll my eyes, Taylor, when I hear coaches say what Baralter said at halftime, but he, he has dived into tactics so many times in the past, and I, I know he thinks about the game in a strategic way that I, I'm much more inclined to be like, oh, shoot, well, yeah, the U.S. do need to win a lot more duels because he's not just using that as a fallback excuse for why his tactics weren't working necessarily. He also talked a bit about what was wrong in the first half in possession. But to get back to your question, Taylor, I think part of it is just is the personnel there, but also, yeah. Get, I mean, you need to win those balls. You need to win those 50-50s. And a lot of that does come down to competition, does come down to actually having the energy and the drive to win those balls. And at times in the first half, the U.S. lacked that. Yeah, I think they did. And I think they also lacked 
that sense of urgency at times, which is easy to say, like sitting here watching it on a screen. <laughs> I, I'm not saying I could have done better. And I'm not saying I was there in the moment. This is truly necessarily what happened. But like one thing that stood out to me, again, that 40th minute one we've already talked about when it's a fief schooling Shaq Moore. He squares for Hatem, as you said, who scuffs the shot. Going back and rewatching, Busio is on Hatem when that play starts, and he is essentially just staring at the ball as Afif dribbles around Shaq Moore and kind of keeps strolling back into defense and has no idea that he has just completely lost his mark. And I think there is the idea of, like, you've just got to be up for it, you've got to win those battles, and you've got to be more willing to get stuck in. But I think there was also an attentiveness that the U.S. had in patches in this game and then didn't at times. And I think some of that is fatigue, but I think some of it is also if you're not yet getting into the trenches and sort of getting into those scraps, getting into those those knockdown drag out like fist fights, you're sort of not literally, but like figuratively. Like, I think there is an idea that you're being passive and you're being reactive, and that if you're being passive and reactive, you're letting the other team control. And as the game went on, that that happened a couple other times. It happens right before Paul Areola comes off, that he is basically, I think, I think just too tired, but he just absolutely doesn't track back and stays 20 yards behind his mark the whole way. There's another one in the second half that's a, a good transition off a U.S. corner for Qatar. I think it's what ends up being the penalty. And in that one, Shaq Moore starts level with his mark. And uh, I forget who it is who ends up winning the penalty. But when it's one, Shaq Moore is 20 yards behind the play. And I think that lack of attention to detail and that sort of aggressiveness in that detail was also a problem for the United States in the first half especially. I, I completely agree. And you couple some of those issues that we just mentioned with the fact that the U.S. was sloppy in moments, not necessarily as much in possession, which is really the big theme from the first half of the U.S. is how much of the ball they had. But in the moments where they didn't have the ball or in the moments where they were trying to transition quickly, like there's this moment, 33rd minute, the ball comes to DK and the U.S. have a chance to counterattack. Yeah. And he, he holds up the ball well, and then he tries to find Shaq more on the near side, the right side for the U.S., and he just hits the ball out of bounds. And there are other moments like that where, not just DK, but where other players are having issues. James Sands, even in possession, uh, misplaying a ball inside the first 10 minutes that gives Qatar a chance. Just moments where the U.S. were sloppy and didn't help themselves in that first half. You add the challenges winning the ball, winning second balls to those sloppy moments to the U.S.'s general inability in possession to break Qatar down. And you do have a rough first half. And if it's not for Matt Turner, the U.S. is down one nothing, maybe more at the half. The XG from that first half, Paul Carr tweeted it out. Qatar had 13 shots in the first 45 for 1.13 XG. The U.S. had three shots for 0.11. So it's a pretty big gap there. Don't read too much into single game XG, single half XG, but that is accurate. If you guys watch this game, we kind of know that Matt Turner was the hero in that first 45. So I want to talk a bit more about Matt Turner, certainly about the second half, obviously, but I want to focus more in on why the U.S. maybe couldn't get much going in that first half, why the possession was a bit stagnant. But first, I want to take a moment to, to recollect and hear from today's sponsors. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, Joe, we are back. Let's talk U.S. possession in the first half. A very specific category, but one that I think is worth 
spending some time on for a moment because I thought we saw some positives at various points. I think we saw a lot of the rotation and fluidity that Greg Berhalter has been building building towards. So sometimes that would be Sam Vines on the left side making that overlapping run from the fullback position. But then if that wasn't on, he would go central and maybe Hoppy would go wide. But then if that wasn't on, Leggett and, and Vines would swap or maybe Leggett and Hoppy would swap. And I think we saw that sort of rotation on and off the ball. And, and, and that made me happy that it was more automatic, more rapid fire than we've seen. I also think we saw as the game went on, Matthew Hoppy basically doing like when Papu Gomez played for Atalanta. That's maybe an esoteric <laughs> reference, but it's essentially like just do whatever you want. And even yeah. that chance that uh, is it's a really great ball. I forget who plays it in for Daryl DK. Um, it's Hoppy. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, of course, it's Hoppy. But that starts with Hoppy on. Or, yeah, I think it's oh, Hoppy. Oh, it's, it's Shaq, Shaq Moore. Moore. I think. Yeah, yeah, this is the Shaq yeah. Moore one. But it starts with Hoppy at on like the left touchline at midfield he plays the ball to James Sands I believe follows the pass basically moves into a right center back position when the ball goes wide to Shaq Moore he steps centrally and Shaq Moore dribbles inside and they're sort of running neck and neck but I do think Hoppy's movement and kind of positional freedom was intentional and then you'd see Sebastian Legette drift to that side and there were there were lots of different overloads but with all that said it still ended up being the case that more often than not, the United States was going for crosses, a lot of which were blocked or cut out or overhit, but they weren't really able to have much joy through the middle. Joe, do you have ideas why that might have been the case? So a lot of it is Qatar's disciplined, super, mm-hmm. super disciplined defensive block. They shift so well side to side. They play with the front two, with which did a really good job. Ali and Afif did a really good job of shadowing Acosta and blocking off passing angles into him. So Acosta was almost a non-factor in, in large stretches of this game. He was a non-factor in large stretches of this game. So first stop. Credit to Qatar. Secondly, for the U.S., you mentioned some some good moments of movement where there's interchanging some on the left side and Hoppy's really cueing some different sequences. But that, to me, was the exception rather than the norm. The U.S. didn't consistently target the space in behind Qatar's back five. And they made it too easy for Qatar just to sit there and play with the game in front of them, have the ball in front of them, let the U.S. pass around from side to side, circulate the ball without real meaningful defense-breaking passes from the U.S. And if you want to break the defense with passing, a lot of times you've got to start with movement. And they're just I don't think there was enough of that in this game. Berhalter highlighted that as well in his post-match press conference. He talked about the problem in the first half, Berhalter said, was our attacking midfielders weren't working the pockets enough and we didn't find them enough in dangerous positions to then activate the wingers and the forwards behind the back line. And I didn't necessarily notice the attacking midfielders not occupying the right spots, but I did see a lack of real runs in behind from Paul Areola and Hoppy. There were some, sure, but they didn't do that classic check to the ball and then break in behind thing a whole lot. There was one from Ariola in the 24th minute that he draws a foul from that sequence. That's great, but again, exception rather than the norm. So so that lack of movement in behind, DK did some of it, but he's not necessarily the guy you want making those runs. I just think more of that direct movement off the ball would have helped stretch Qatar and then could have created more of those pockets for the U.S. to play into, and, and we didn't see quite enough of that. We did not. And I want to then go back to Kellen Acosta for a moment. I, I tweeted this out, but to, like, to reset for the many, many people who are not on Twitter and uh, power to you because that's probably good for your mental health and just good <laughs> for your overall being. But I feel like this was a strange things can be two things sort of game for the U.S., but specifically for Kellen Acosta, because I think for the most part, he had a, a very good game. I think he was one of the better performers for the United States. I think you're right, though, that he wasn't very involved for large stretches when it came to U.S. possession, especially when it came to U.S. attacking possession. But I also think it's a strange scenario in which that's not necessarily deliberate, but it's part of the game plan. I think he was told, don't sort of drift forward, don't get pulled out of position. And to some extent, I think Qatar were inviting that the way they were sitting on him. But then the midfield three was dropping a little bit deeper. Uh, Hatem, uh, Buendif, and Alhaidos would drop in and there would be that space for Kellen Acosta. And I think they were sort of inviting him to step into it, inviting him to move five and 10 yards further up the field. But that would have left the United States in a 2v2 situation for the counterattack. And that's really what Qatar wanted. So I think Kevin Acosta did a good job to hold in the middle, not get pulled out, not sort of roam around. But then what that meant is that he had to be very safe in possession. And so that meant a lot of the time he's receiving the ball, 
Maybe he takes a touch and then maybe he plays it right back or maybe he takes a touch and plays it laterally. But we didn't see him sort of turning, splitting those defenders and then playing that ball through. Again, that may be a thing that he was asked not to do because if he coughs that ball up, the U.S. are in an incredibly vulnerable position. But this is where I say it feels like things can be two things of he had a good game and did what was asked. But I think simultaneously we see once again why Tyler Adams is such a critical part of this team when we have the senior team, the full team put together because he can do all of those things, but he also has the ability because of that Red Bulls background to turn under pressure and to split two defenders and just not even that you have to do it every time, but if you do it once or twice, the opponent recognizes it and has to adjust. And I'm a big believer in the idea that if they have to change what they're doing because you have an individual who did a thing once or twice and now they want to limit that, if they're dropping deeper, it opens up space for other people. It makes them change. It makes them just sort of like break formation, basically, and it opens up opportunities. And so, again, I think Kellen Acosta had a fine game. I would say a good game. But I, I do still wonder if Tyler Adams is there. Is that U.S. attack just that much more fluid and potent? So I, I think that was also just a big thing for me, that we didn't have much adventurous possession through the middle. Yeah, yeah. No, adventurous is the perfect word, Taylor. I, I was trying to think about how to phrase this. The U.S. just didn't take a whole lot of risks, right? They they were pretty tame, pretty vanilla in possession. The only moment in the first half where I really noted a U.S. player trying to take somebody on in possession to beat someone, use that qualitative advantage, use the advantage in quality to beat a player and drive and break a defense down. It was that Shaq Moore to Daryl DK play that you talked about earlier, Taylor. It's when Shaq Moore gets on the ball off of a pass, I believe again from James Sands. He gets on the ball and he goes and drives past Ahmed, the, the Qatar's left wing back, and he, he helps break the shape. He breaks past a player, plays a lovely ball into the box for DK and DK can't do much with it. But that play doesn't happen if Shaq Moore doesn't dribble, right? That just doesn't happen if you don't try to take someone on. Hoppy did some of that. Leggett did a little bit of that. Acosta didn't do a whole lot of that. Sands and, and more players are doing it in the second half, both with their work on the ball and then being more adventurous off the ball with their movement. But I think that's that's one of this U.S. team's major flaws in possession. And we really saw it in the first half is just a lack of adventurous possession. And, and that's some, somewhat to do with the roster that Brawlta brought in. Again, constraints surrounding that. But I, I think it's fair to criticize that in this game. But I do then want to stick with Acosta for a moment to then talk maybe more positively about him. Because one thing I did notice in the first 15 to 20 minutes is Acosta, when Qatar would try to build out of the back, he would stick on uh, Bundiaf, the yeah, yeah. central central midfielder. And that was the one that you usually had Kuki, trying to, Kuki, the central center back, trying to play it into Bundiaf, who could then spread it wide or he could turn. But Acosta would would do a really good job of stepping with him, tracking him. And so similar to what was being done to Kellen Acosta, when Bundiaf was receiving that ball, it usually was going straight back or he wasn't receiving it at all. But then if the wide options were cut out for Qatar, that's where they would start like just kind of thumping it long. And that's where the U.S. did have a larger spell of possession early. What then I saw start happening was that Qatar would build out from even deeper. They would have their sort of their three center backs maybe five yards further back than they would have been earlier, but the rest of the team was stepping higher up the field so that U.S. midfield had to drop a little bit deeper. And now uh, Bundia could have, Bundiaf could have time on the ball, did start finding little pockets of space, and then he could turn, he could combine with maybe one of the center backs who would step forward. And now you have an overload. Now you have numbers in the middle, but you still have numbers out wide. And I think... Kellen Acosta made Qatar change what they were doing. And, and when you look at like uh, a game as like a tactical chess match or a tactical tennis match, I think that was Qatar having to change their style and what they wanted to do because Kellen Acosta was being so diligent in his defensive responsibilities. So I would say credit to him for the defensive work, but overall, not the most inspiring first half. Joe, any other points we should get to from a sort of overall gameplay, overall team perspective? Again, we're going to talk about individuals a little bit later. Um, do we want to dive into maybe some things that looked better in the second half, Taylor? Yeah, I think that's where I would like to go because second half... Maybe it doesn't start way, way better, but certainly I think about midway through that half gets a lot better. And I think a lot of that has to do with substitutions. But did you notice anything from kickoff in the second half, Joe, that seemed like things were going differently? Not really. The U.S. had more energy, it mm -hmm. felt to me, even 
Okay, let me back up. The second half is super weird in how the game was actually played because <laughs> things start out and the U.S. are getting a bit more of the ball. Mm-hmm. Areola makes some more direct runs in behind in the first two, three minutes of the second half. James Sands strides forward more on the ball and the U.S. are playing with more purpose and more energy. And then they earn a corner kick off of a nice sequence of play. That, I can't remember. It's not the hoppy pass into DK, but they get the ball forward and they have a corner kick and Busio takes it. And then Qatar burned the U.S. down the field and uh, Afif draws a foul from James Sands in the box. And we already kind of talked about that early on. And and then after that, U.S. go into full penalty kick uh, delay mode, yep. I guess you could call <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, they do. Kellen Acosta <laughs> has some serious, serious CONCACAF energy as he's yeah, he does. Uh, getting forward on Al Haidos and, and in his face. And James Sands is distracting the referee. And then Legette and Busio come over to say hi to the ref. And it's a whole thing. It goes on for ever, which fair play to the U.S., that's exactly what you want to do in a situation like this. You want to muck up this whole situation. Then Alhaidos takes the penalty and, and Matt Turner stays up on his feet. He doesn't dive as Alhaidos is trying to stutter step in and make him shift and pick a side. And, and Turner doesn't really do that. And Alhaidos chips the penalty over the bar and the U.S. escape without having conceded. And it is that that whole sequence for Qatar was kind of against the run of play. And so the U.S. came out strong really early on, and then they kept that momentum especially. I think they felt that energy boost after the penalty miss from Qatar, and they really started to take the game to them. They get some subs on in the second half with Roldan coming on and playing as that right-sided eight for Busio. Zardes comes on for DK, which I think was much needed. And then Reggie Cannon comes on for Shaq Moore. And those players just brought so much energy that they kind of remade that second half after it was almost like a whole separate game at that point because of how how strange the first 15 minutes or 10 minutes of that second half were. It, it was a different match, and the U.S. were really up for it at that point, I thought. Yeah, and I think those substitutions came in with a better briefing on what was actually happening in the game, which sounds slightly backhanded, and maybe it is. I don't mean for it to, but Joe, you talked earlier about how Qatar, they weren't really full-pressing the entire time. There was never this like aggressive press, everybody's sprinting, everybody's closed down, everybody's running as much as they can. They did that at times, but other times they backed off and made sure they got their shape and then they would press or then they would sit off. And it was, it was very varied. But for the United States, it seemed like they always thought Qatar were going to be high pressing them. And so there was this sort of focus on keeping the ball moving and like, oh, I got to play it quickly, but it was almost in the wrong moments. And then they would get it into the right moments to play quickly. And that's where they would slow down. And I think the substitution starting in the 63rd minute, I think, is when we get yep. Cannon Zardes and Roldan on. You get Shaq Moore, Jean-Luc Busio, and Daryl DK going off. I think that's where we start to see the U.S. being more proactive, committing numbers further up the field, counter-pressing and pressing, causing Qatar problems. And that's the stretch where, I think Stu Holden said it in the broadcast, Qatar really not able to play out of the back anymore, not able to get anything going. So they just start kind of clearing long, and that requires 50-50 battles and foot races, and the U.S. is in a good position to win those this time. And then they really take the game under control, and I think the second wave of substitutions when Joaquini and Williamson come on, I think those were the perfect changes in those moments, and I know Ariola was angry to be subbed off. I know it seemed as though at least like uh, Hoppy was as well, but I think... Those adjustments ended up being the difference and not just because it's Zardes who scored, but because I think those players come on with fresh legs and are trying to go at Qatar at this point. They're, they're sort of recognizing that other players have done the work of tiring out that defense. Now we can sort of be quick, be aggressive, be decisive in our passing and try to open them up. And I would argue that's exactly what the U.S. do to get that goal. I think the U.S. was better in pretty much every phase of the game in the second half, and especially after the subs come on. In possession, Reggie Kanan, playing right back, was making much more aggressive runs than Shaq Moore was making. And maybe that's a specific instruction. Maybe he just saw the game. I don't know. But he started to cause Qatar real problems on Qatar's left, the U.S.'s right. Couple that with Roldan and Areola on that right side, and then later uh, Roldan shifts to the to the right and Williamson comes on, like we mentioned. That that trio, that side was causing Qatar some real problems. And Sam Vines starts to make some runs forward on the left side, which he hadn't done a whole lot of in the first half. And in the 78th minute, he makes a run forward and kind of interior in, in a moment as well. And he, they combine. I can't remember, shoot, Hoppy and, and Vines and, and Legette and Zardes, I believe, is the trio, or the quartet at that point. It's a really nice moment of attacking play. So possession looked better for the U.S. The movement was there, and it wasn't there in the first half. 
uh, in transition, the U.S. looked better. Counterattacking, I thought they were better. And in defensive transition, they were better. They were winning more of those balls in midfield. They looked more active, stepping to the ball, winning it, counterpressing, all that good stuff. It was just, it was better. A counter presser, a counter pressing moment leads to that hoppy ball that, that defines DK in the 52nd minute. It's a great sequence. And then the last thing that really was better for the U.S. The high press, they were, they were flustering. Maybe, maybe the high press wasn't better, but Qatar were, were wilting under that high press. And so it looked better. Barsham, the goalie for Qatar, really struggled with the ball at his feet in that second half. He looked shaky and the U.S. kept pressing him and they kept pressing, uh, Kuki and they kept pressing Al-Rawi and, and just all of the players in buildup for Qatar. And the goal, Taylor, the goal that, uh, that Zardes scores late in the second half. It comes after a moment where Zardes is pressing high up against Kuki. They win the ball and, and then they go from there in midfield after Legette heads it forward to Joe Acchini. But the two plays before that for the U.S. are almost identical to that goal scoring play. It's Zardes stepping forward or it's the U.S. in general stepping forward, forcing a chipped ball into midfield, winning that first ball, collecting the second ball, and then attacking. And nothing comes of the attacks on the first two pressing sequences. But the third one, the U.S. actually do manage to string together a nice moment it's a little it's a little fortunate that Zardes is one onside as you tweeted Taylor uh, about him maybe being off and getting a touch on that ball but also Qatar just not clearing the ball out and they probably should have done that but man it's a repeatable actions in the second half that get the U.S. on the scoreboard and that's just so important in this game yeah and and really if you if you like go back to what we talked about with the first half it was maybe the U.S. sitting off not being consistent in the way they were pressing but then also not winning those duels not being as stuck in to certain challenges and then not being fast enough when they did get the ball to take advantage and, and pick the right moments. And, and I spotlight all that just to say that that's like basically every single part of this goal. As you said, it's Zardes applying the pressure. It's a very under hit clearance slash ball forward, but then it's, it's well won by Sebastian Legette who just does like the cushion header down, but he plays it into Joachini and away we go. And then it's, it's, it's incisive dribbling for Joachini. It's a smart pass to Williamson. And I think Williamson is going for Joachini the whole way. As you said, Zardes gets the touch. I've, I'm more convinced that maybe he's kept on by, uh, Ahmed on the far it's side. It's so close. <laughs> it's also the case that, like, I'm not trying to be, I'm not even really being critical here. I'm just pointing out that I think if Zardes doesn't get that touch, I think Joachini takes that ball cleanly. So I think it's a great passing sequence from, uh, from Joachini to Williamson and back to Joachini, but then credit to Joachini for staying alive to the ball, kind of getting it under control, picking out the pass, finding Zardes. Zardes does what Zardes does, gets there in the exact right moment and finishes the U.S. with the goal, with the lead, with the eventual win. And say what you want about the first half. If you're frustrated with Qatar, with like Qatar as the level of opponent, I don't think you should be for the reasons we've already talked about. But I, I think I at least am heartened by the fact that this wasn't just like-for-like changes from Burhalter and then hoping that things work better. I think to some extent there was fresh legs making things work better, but I think there were also little adjustments in you need to be five yards over here, you need to be five yards further up that that did make a difference. And then I think there was that sort of attacking encouragement you talked about one in the second half in the 69th minute i had cannon to roldan roldan turns and plays wide to areola cannon makes an underlapping run areola plays in, plays him in and i think it leads to a corner it might have just led to a cross that goes out for a goal kick but either way it's just so much more direct and rapid fire from the united states and it made such a big difference so i end up though it's only one nail in Qatar did have the uh, superior XG, at least at halftime, but I think at full time as well. Yeah. I remain heartened and optimistic, depending on who the opponent is. Always a little bit nervous about Mexico. Uh, so I'm going to take a moment to, to be nervous, and then we will be back to round this one out by talking about some individual performances and what we would like to see from the U.S. in the final. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but... 
For the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, Joe Lowry, we are back. Uh, we can talk a little bit. Let's start with negative performances so we can end on a positive because I think there were a couple people that I had in the negative column. What about you? Were there any players that you think didn't help their uh, their stock overall or maybe just had an outright poor performance? I don't think James Sands was all that strong in general in this game. He had some nice defensive moments and he stepped in to win the ball a few times, but giving up that pretty clear penalty on a thief in the second half that, that ends up going to VAR, but we can almost always tell that was a penalty. Uh, that was a rough moment from him. He had a couple errant passes, and I just don't think this was his cleanest game. I don't think it dramatically hurts his chance to be on that World Cup qualifying roster. I think he'll be involved in that in one way or another, but just not necessarily the James Sands performance that we've come to expect in this tournament so far. Uh, and other negative performances, I think the most obvious one is Daryl DK as that number nine. Maybe it's that shoulder injury from the Canada game that's bothering him. It looked like that at least was part of it. But he was off from almost the start of this game. His hold-up play, again, not super sharp, not lethal on that moment that Shaq Moore does play him in the box. That's that's where he wants to be. That's the exact space he loves, getting the ball on his right foot, and it just doesn't come together. 
it's a bummer. Again, I want to see Daryl DK really grab this spot, but it's just not happening right now, Taylor. No, it's not. And there was the shoulder injury. There's the maybe fatigue issues. But I think it, it was like having seen an underwhelming performance against Jamaica, my hope was that we would see him just sort of fine-tune some things. Okay, this run wasn't working. Okay, I didn't drop in quickly enough. I, I tried to take too many touches or I tried to play too quickly. Whatever the situation may have been, I had hoped that we would see just some adjustments that did allow him to be in better positions. And to some extent, we did because he does get those two through balls. He is in good positions and you have to make a smart run to be in that position. But I also think it's a credit to his teammates who play him in for both of those moments. And then that he can't take them cleanly. Like that's what you have to do. And that's what he was doing for Barnsley when he really like rose to rapid fire prominence is if you gave him a sight of goal, he was hitting it at least on frame. Oftentimes he was powering it into the back of the net. And when he's not doing that, you start to see the heavy touches and the passes in behind. Again, maybe there's an injury there that's limiting his effectiveness, but it still wasn't nearly as much of an improved performance as I would have liked. If anything, it was, I would say, as poor of a performance. So though he is very young, I'm not saying he's like, that's it. I never want to see Daryl DK again, because that is definitely not true. I really hope we see Daryl DK a lot more. But I, I, I think I won't be surprised or too disappointed if it's Jassi Zardes starting in the final. Is that, Are you on board with that one? Yeah, it feels like it will be, right? This was... The, even this game, I thought, okay, there's a real chance we see Jossie Zardes in, in this one in the semifinal. But it, it's the final, and if Baralta really does want to win this tournament, which he says he does, but maybe that still doesn't trump World Cup qualifying information, gathering, scavenger hunt, quest, whatever you want to call it. It just it feels like that's going to be Zardes against Mexico or Canada, but I guess we'll find out on Sunday. We I saw some people tweeting this. I think I, I am wondering it as well. I, we, I feel like we could theoretically see Matthew Hoppy start in that position. I don't think we will because I think he's he's kind of made that left wing, left forward, left central midfielder position his own, and I think he will continue to do so. But with DK looking uninspiring, Jassi Zardes scoring the goal, but like I think there's always going to be that. Like, is Jassi Zardes going to be our backup striker or our starting striker if it comes to the World Cup? I wouldn't hate seeing Matthew Hoppy give it a chance, but I, I don't think that's as likely uh, I, not even a question there, Joe. I just think Matthew Hoppy was so impressive for me in so many different aspects of this game. He doesn't end up getting like the goal right before he subs out as he did against Jamaica. But even with that aside, I thought his movement off the ball was really interesting. I thought he fought for everything and was just as aggressive as we've seen him in the past. But I think also he did a lot of defensive work that we've sort of come to expect from him. And that's not a thing I really knew was a part of his game. But how good he is at making that 10 to 15 yard closing sprint to poke the ball away or just to hassle the player into maybe making a pass they didn't want to make. I thought he was very good uh, for pretty much the entirety of the game. I love Toppy tonight. I think he was better than he even was against Jamaica. Yeah. He was cleaner on the ball, maybe didn't quite get as much of the ball, at least in transition. The Jamaica game was really open for the whole game. This game really only opened up in the second half, and then Hoppy comes off and doesn't play that whole second half with the 87,000 minutes of stoppage time and all that good stuff. So, <laughs> but, but Hoppy was, he was a little bit cleaner on the ball. He gets shoved off the ball a lot, I think, growing physically growing and just becoming stronger is going to be a big part of his next evolution as a player. But he he actually tries stuff. He is the single most adventurous player. We talked about that being an issue for the U.S. earlier on. He is the guy who's trying stuff. He is the guy who's trying to go at you or to combine. He has a lovely combination play moment with Legette in the 40th minute that then leads to Legette drawing a yellow card, I believe, in the U.S. getting a free kick in that first half. That's the kind of stuff Hoppy does. You add that to the lovely weak foot, his left-footed ball into DK that we've mentioned a number of times. It just It's an encouraging performance from him to see a guy who's willing to try stuff. He's not going to be perfect, but you need someone. Christian Pulisic kind of is that for the, the full senior team. Someone who will try stuff, and it's not going to come off all the time. But Hoppy, he's been the biggest surprise of this whole tournament for me. And credit to Burhalter for immediately identifying him as a winger. He brought him in as a winger, and I think everybody looked at it, myself included. And thought, myself included. <laughs> That's weird. Why would you play him as a winger? Yep. He's only ever played as a nine for Schalke in a front two. And he was right. We were wrong. And that's the way it goes. So we're both then very much okay with Hoppy starting in the final. I think we're both okay with Jossie Zardes because it seems like he is 
Berhalter's guy, that he's going to do what's asked of him, he's going to do what's expected, and he's going to kind of execute the game plan and hopefully pop up in the ideal moment to get the goal. On the right-hand side, Joe, I have mm. questions, because I <laughs> did not think Paul Areola did enough to start of the final. I thought that this was another sort of, in my opinion, uninspiring or unimpressive performance from him that I thought, I think he he worked really hard, he fought for everything, and that's what we've come to expect from him. But then simultaneously, I think he was not as successful as I would have liked in his 1v1 take-ons when in attack. And as I already pointed out, I would argue a big part of the penalty and why Sands is sort of scrambling and thus concedes the penalty is because he's trying to split that difference he's trying to do the like what Virgil van Dyke does better than any other defender in the world I think is when you've got two players running at you to split the difference so the pass isn't on but the shot is difficult Sands is trying to do that he ends up getting like cut on and then he concedes the foul but a lot of that is because Paul Areola is just unable to track back and I don't know if that's fitness or if that's just a lack of awareness of the situation but either way he is pretty much straight up jogging and watches that play develop and just moments like that I think loom larger to me because maybe it's, it's fatigue. Maybe it's just tired legs at the end of a game, but that's still something where you've got to have a shout. You've got to tell somebody there's got to be something there. Or if you are that gassed, then you've got to be aware and maybe just time your runs or pick your spots. And I, and I didn't see as much of that from Paul Ariola. So I am okay with maybe there being a bit of experimentation out wide. My question for you, Joe, is who would you like to see on that right-hand side? Because I think there's a couple different options. I think I'm most okay with Christian Roldan maybe starting out on the right wing. I'm w- I'm with you. It's either – in my head, it's either Ariola or Roldan. It could yep. be Joe Aquini. It could be Leggett. That's the other one. But I, I, think, I think you go with Roldan. The only reason I'm hesitating is because – in the last two games, in the quarterfinals and in the semifinals, Rodan's come off the bench and he's helped change the game. I don't think he had, we talked about this in, in the last show, the last U.S. Men's National Team show, I don't think he had a massive impact off the bench against Jamaica. He, he plays the ball in for the assist, but that can blind us a little bit and make us think, oh, he was a lot more influential than he was. He was fine. He, he, was, he was good in that performance. He was, he was pretty darn good tonight off the bench. And so the only reason I'm hesitating about starting him over Areola is maybe you want to roll with that same circa 60-minute second half rotation, you bring Roldan on, you bring Reggie Cannon on, and, and maybe one other player, and that changes the game. And that that kind of feels dumb of me to say that, because why wouldn't you just change the game from the start? And that's ultimately why I think you start Areola. I mean, you start Roldan rather than Areola. But I, I could see it going either way, and to be honest, I'm not going to be too fussed regardless of how that turns out. What about further back? Because I would assume we will still have Sebastian Legette. I would assume we will still have Kellen Acosta. Yeah. Uh, John Luca Busio is one who I don't think, again, was in that category of like, didn't have a bad game, but I also don't think did a ton, especially on attack, to justify, or at least to immediately justify starting in that final. I think I saw him moving wide into that kind of right fullback spot so Shaq Moore could push on, but when he would get the ball, I feel like it tended to be a lot of balls back to the center back or maybe to Shaq Moore, but there wasn't that sort of proactive, progressive attack that I would have liked to see. And I, and I think maybe that Eric Williamson, when he came in, did provide that. It might again be tired legs, impact sub. But I think I, I would not mind seeing Eric Williamson starting over Jean-Luc Busio, And I would not mind seeing Christian Roldan starting and then being that like other central midfielder on occasion, yeah. uh, for Paul Areola. I'm totally, I'm totally with you. If it's Areola starting on the right and he, he maintains that spot, I'd like to see Roldan or Williamson in midfield. And yep. if, if Areola doesn't start, I'd like to see Roldan uh, high on that right side and then Williamson as that right side at eight. I don't think we will see Eric Williamson start. It just doesn't seem like that's in the cards. Yeah. He hasn't played a whole lot, generally speaking, throughout this tournament. So I think it will either be Busio or Roldan. I just don't really like Busio in that more advanced right-sided or even on the left. I just don't think he's super effective between the lines. I don't yep. think he brings a lot of advanced creativity. I'd rather see him at the six, not just generally speaking. I want to see a cost at the six, but if Busio is going to play somewhere, I'd rather him play at the six and that spot's already taken. So I'd, I'd probably rather see Roldan or Williamson in that spot. And with the back four, then uh, we would assume it would be Sands, Robinson, and Vines. Uh, Joe, I know that in the rewatch you were going to take a look at uh, Robinson in a little bit greater uh, detail. Did you like what you saw from him uh, in the initial watch and in the rewatch? He's just solid, man. He's just yep. so solid. No big mistakes that I noticed on either of those watches. 
okay with the ball if he didn't break nearly the amount of lines and, and start the same number of attacks that he did against Jamaica. But that's a lot to do with how how, how more disciplined Qatar were, how much more disciplined Qatar were than Jamaica. But I like Miles Robinson. I think he is another huge winner from this whole tournament. I know the whole thing's not done yet. But man, I'll be shocked at this point if we don't see him in a World Cup qualifying in that first September window. It feels like he's earned that spot. So I want to see Robinson. I want to see Sands. You don't really have many better options at, the, at those spots anyway in the middle of the back line. Vines makes a ton of sense. Turner obviously has to be in there at in goal. He's been so, 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 so good throughout this entire tournament. The only question is, is do you start Reggie Cannon over Shaq Moore? Do you roll with Shaq Moore? I don't really care a whole lot. Cannon did some good stuff off the bench. Moore's done some good stuff in this tournament. Not not been great, but you know, he's in the he's in the competition. He's in the the discussion for World Cup qualifying as well. Taylor, do you have a preference between one of those two right backs? Yeah, Reggie Cannon. Uh, okay. I think I think a lot of that is just because I really like Reggie Cannon. <laughs> yeah, he's a great guy. He seems like I a great think, guy. <laughs> yeah, he really does. I, so I think I just sort of like Reggie. Uh but then I I do also think there were as I've already talked about the moments where Shaq Moore, I think, switched off or just wasn't as defensively solid in those 1v1s or in some of the sort of positional movement that I think was necessary of just sliding over in the right moment or being too central and then having to make up that dis- that difference. Um, and, and I think Reggie Cannon offered a bit more in the attack, and I think he, he picks his spots better. Like, I, I think Shaq Moore, I see more often like driving to the end line and then just going for the cross, either like the big one of the back post or the low driven one. But it's sort of a, I've made my decision 10 yards from the end line that I'm going to drive towards the end line and then cross mm. it. So it's going to be head down. I'm doing that no matter what. And that's a thing that Pulisic did way back with Borussia Dortmund. And I think it's a thing that Gio Reyna did after him of not picking their head up to spot if there's something on there or if there's a better option elsewhere, but just I'm hitting the ball in the box and something's going to happen. And what happened a lot for the U.S. in this game was that that ball was cut out for a corner or just cleared out right, didn't get past the first man. And I think Reggie Cannon, by contrast, picked his spots a little bit more, held off, stayed deeper, but then made the runs on occasion when I think those runs needed to be made. So I I would like it to be Reggie Cannon. That said, I won't be particularly disappointed if it's Shaq Moore. If it's anybody but Matt Turner, though, I will be very angry. <laughs> I have uh, I have Robinson as like the uh, number three on the list of player who's like had the best tournament, whose stock has improved the most. I had Matthew Hoppy as number two. And it's Matt Turner as number one because he might be the number one. And, and that did not seem like a thing that I was going to say heading into this tournament. I feel like it has been Zach Steffen's position. We've seen him start there. But it's not the sort of like when we had Tim Howard or when we had Brad Friedel before that. And it was just it's like, yep, that's our number one. I think it's been Zach Steffen because other goalkeepers have had their moments and then also had disappointing moments. Was it Horvath who had the howler for his debut? Like Mm. those sort of moments, I think, loom large. So it's just been like, yeah, Zach Steffen, he's been good enough. But to see Matt Turner make the saves he's made, but also make the decisions he's made. Like that one where he does end up making the full stretch save off of um Hatem. I think it was Hatem, uh, who's basically where it's the shot. Uh, uh, Fief cuts inside, has the shot that's blocked up in the air. Yeah. It goes down, and then it's like it's kind of just put wide of the post. Or I think it's going to be on frame. It's push wide. But there are other goalkeepers who would have come out and tried to punch that ball clear or would have tried to catch that ball and gone through the attacker. And maybe they get it. But oftentimes it's a foul because they barge into the attacker or they don't get great contact and now they're flying through the air and maybe they're out of position and maybe it leaves the goal wide open. And I, and I in the moment thought, oh, he should have come for that one. But the way as he, instead of charging out, he sort of just, you can see him making little adjustments in his, in his, in his feet and he gets his footing right and he gets his positioning right and he is just able to immediately react and dive the right way because he's set and he's not scrambling. He's not lunging for a ball or anything like that. And it's a thing I've talked about with him earlier in the competition that you just, you need a goalkeeper who evaluates the situation in the first minute and in the 91st minute. And I feel like Matt Turner does that. So well, and maybe I'm saying things that MLS and New England fans already knew. I'm sure Matt Doyle (laughs) would say he knew this. But uh, for me, Matt Turner has just been really outstanding from start to finish. Matt Turner has really has been this good in Major League Soccer for a while. And so there are a lot of folks that have been pushing for it, myself included, I would say, pushing for him to get looks with the national team. And all that stuff is fair. But it's also just extremely encouraging to see him continuing and bringing that shot-stopping ability 
over to the national team because you assume that's going to happen, but you don't really know for sure. There's no way to know for sure. You can look at all that past data, but it's encouraging to see him just do that same darn stuff over and over again with the U.S. men's national team. And he will concede a goal from open play eventually, and he will make a mistake. That stuff happens, but it hasn't happened yet, darn it. He has that great save we talked about, <laughs> and, and he has he has one earlier where James Sands deflects the ball. I'm not really sure what Sands is doing in that moment. Uh, it's, it's a shot from distance. I think it's a shot from Kuki. It takes a, a touch off of Ali, just a faint touch, and then Sams just kind of sticks his left foot out and deflects it towards goal, obviously unintentionally, but I still don't know what's going on there. Turner then is still able to dive yep. and save it. Even He has to react so quickly. I can't even really fathom how quickly you have to react and then get low and then parry the ball wide. So many things happen so quickly for Matt Turner in that moment and in other moments in this game. He he is the best shot stopping goalkeeper the U.S. has, and that is such a valuable skill that that's more valuable than than passing the ball with your that that's more valuable than passing the ball with your feet, passing out from the back, helping and build up. That stuff's important, and it's really important to how Berhalter wants to play. But it will never be as important as pulling out save after save like Matt Turner has done so far. He deserves so much credit, and there's a there's a very good chance that he's starting that first World Cup qualifier against El Salvador in September. Yeah, I think at the very least, going into those World Cup qualifier, to that camp and to those practice sessions, it's it's like 50-50. Whoever performs best here is the starter. But I, I am really uh, pretty happy with the goalkeeper situation right now. And that's not, again, a thing that I would necessarily have said before this tournament began. So thank you to the Gold Cup for that. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Joe Lowry, for talking about USA 1 Qatar nil. Uh, everything that happened first half, second half, individual performers, overall performance, breaking down the goal. Anything else, Joe, from this game before we call it an evening slash morning since it's past midnight? I don't think so, Taylor. I think it's time for you to get to bed so that we can wake up and talk about more soccer with Jordan and talk about that U.S. Women's National Team. Hopefully a win tomorrow morning. We will be back uh, to break down that game. Certainly, as you said, Joe, we will have allocation disorder out tomorrow as well. And then Joe and I will be back Sunday evening for the USA's Gold Cup final. That is at 8.30 p.m., I believe, East Coast time. It's the United States versus TBD, uh, question mark at, at present, because I believe it is still... One-to-one in the 90-plus minute of uh, the other semifinal between Mexico and Canada. So we will see what happens there. But Joe Lowry, for now, USA in the final. I feel like we can be pretty happy. And I've been very happy to talk to you for the last hour. Oh, thanks, buddy. I, I'm stoked. This has been so much fun. This win was fun, even though the performance wasn't perfect and yep. the show was fun. Taylor, thanks for having me. I agree, Joe. My pleasure, listeners. Hopefully it was your pre- pleasure to listen, even if I <laughs> couldn't end up saying that sentence properly. Uh, but thank you all so much for tuning in, and we will talk to you all again very, very, very soon. 